This is Mark, who is the pen for Peter, interestingly enough, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 14, verses 54 and then 66 through 72, and these are the words that he pens. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, and the flower does indeed fail, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I want us to glean six practical insights this morning from this text. But I want to begin this morning by making a few positive observations from Peter's uh, denial of Christ. I think there is something to be said here that is positive for Peter. Yes, Peter sinned big. Yes, Peter sinned grievously. But I think that there is something to be said that is positive in regard to Peter. I think sometimes we tell this story in such a way as to be too critical of Peter's failures. Listen, I am not trying to minimize Peter's sin. We are never justified in minimizing sin. Never, 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 never. Sin is sin. It is cosmic treason. The Lord hates it. It is what hung Jesus on the cross. It is why God the Father poured out his fury upon his Son. Ever want to know how much God hates sin? Just look at what he did to deal with it. God hates sin. And I am in no way making an attempt to justify Peter's sin. But I think sometimes we tell this story in such a way as to be too critical of Peter's failures. We oftentimes fail to recognize that up to this point, Peter has been one of fantastically reckless courage. I mean, Peter has been an incredible uh, display and show of courageousness. He had begun just hours before this uh, by drawing his sword in the garden with reckless courage uh, as as he lopped off the ear of Malchus, servant to the high priest. Common prudence would have urged Peter to lie very low. Common prudence would have told Peter, uh, buddy, get on out of here. Don't show your face again. You, you, you kind of escaped out of the garden. Okay? It would not be wise. It would not be prudent. It would not be thoughtful. It would not be smart. It would not be using your noggin, Peter, to follow everybody right into the courtyard of the high priest. Okay? You're, you're a glutton for punishment. That's what prudence would say. Peter set it all aside, and he follows follows the crowd right into the courtyard of the high priest. He follows the whole mob, and he follows by himself. Everyone else had left. All the other disciples had scrammed. All the other disciples had disbanded and gone their separate ways, but Peter, Peter follows the mob, uh, but, but behind the faint flickering of torches, all the way to the courtyard of the high priest. Common prudence would have said otherwise. The last place anyone would have dreamed that Peter would go would be to the courtyard of the high priest. Yet that's precisely where Peter went. This in and of itself, friends, is sheer audacity. It's audacity. 
Here's Peter following the Lord Jesus. Others had fled, but Peter here, he's at least making an attempt at keeping his word. Remember, it was Peter, and I think he got a little bit ahead of himself. He put the cart before the horse. He put a little bit too much confidence in his own, in his own self when Peter said, if everyone else denies you, if everyone else leaves Jesus, yet I'll follow you. Here's Peter making an attempt to keep his word, following Jesus. Even if the others had gone, Peter tried to stick with Jesus. And so before we fault Peter too much for being the one that denies Jesus three times, let us note who it is that's following Jesus in our passage. It's Peter. Peter, Peter, with all his faults, with all his flaws, with all of his warts very visible to us in the word, it's Peter. It's Peter following Jesus. Bless his heart. It's undoubted that his desire to follow Jesus came from a deep-rooted love for his Lord. I think Peter loved Jesus recklessly, wildly, greatly. He loved his Lord. If one of the disciples was Jesus' right-hand man, it was Peter. Matter of fact, if you can remember back, don't turn there, but just remember back to John chapter 6 when Jesus had been teaching about the fact that he was the bread of life. In that whole section of teaching, it is concluded that some, after hearing Jesus' teaching, said, "This this is challenging, this is difficult, this is hard. This is a hard teaching. And they turned away and no longer followed him. But not Peter. Not Peter. Jesus turned to the twelve after some had left him, and Jesus asked his disciples, Do you want to leave as well? And who is it that pipes up? It's Peter. Peter pipes up. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter, Peter, Peter's the one that pipes up. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples this question, Who do people say that I am? Who is it that pipes up? It's Peter. Peter pipes up again. I'm going to get you so distracted. But now that I've said Peter pipes up, I can't Peter, Piper, pick the... It's like, that's all I can think about now. All right? Goodness gracious. It's, man. Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter. Peter says, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Hey, friends, did Peter fail? You bet your bottom dollar he did. Peter failed. Peter, Peter messed up royally. And, and, and lest we use just the common cultural language of failed or messed up. No, Peter sinned. Peter transgressed the Lord. Peter violated the express command of the Lord to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Peter sinned. And we can learn a lot from that. And so what I want to do this morning is I I want to look back at kind of the anatomy of Peter's failure as it comes to us in Mark chapter 14, verses 54, and then 66 through 72, and kind of see uh, the anatomy of his failure. And and what are some things that we can learn? What are some principles that we can glean here from Peter's failure? What observations can we make from Peter's life and the surrounding events that led to his tragic denial of his master? You ready to put pen to paper? Here we go. Number one. Principle number one. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Look at verse 54. Specifically verse 54a. Or the first part of verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Friends, what was it that caused Peter to follow Jesus at a distance as Jesus was arrested and led to the high priest's home? What was it? What was it that caused Peter to follow his Lord at a distance? What was it that made Peter, the one who was always by Jesus' side, now drop back? 
Let me tell you what it was. It was fear. It was fear. Friends, fear will lead you to places that do not glorify and honor God. Fear will lead you to places that do not honor and do not glorify God. Peter feared his life. For the first time, some of the reality of what Jesus had been saying about his death was beginning to be made crystal clear. And in this moment, when all hope seemed lost, at least from a human perspective, Peter feared his relationship with Jesus. Peter feared being understood as being connected to that man. And that fear caused Peter to do something that he thought he would never do. That just hours ago he thought he would never do. The one who was always quick with the answer and bold and courageous was now crippled by fear. And this fear caused Peter to shrink back instead of standing firm. Let me ask you a question, friends. How closely are you following Jesus? How closely are you following Jesus? Are you actively engaged in following hard after Christ? And here's the, here's the kicker, with no reservation. Do people know that you're one of this man's disciples? Are you sharing Christ, the only Savior, the only hope for sin with those around you? Do those in your neighborhood know about your relationship with Christ? Do the next generation that are around you know of your relationship and your union with the Lord Jesus Christ? Would people even know that you know him? I mean, it's one thing to stand up in, in relative anonymity and say, that is my Lord, Jesus is my King. But then when we go out in the public arena, when we're out in the public square, we shrink back. And our, our speech changes. Our actions begin to conform to the way of the world. We begin to do what people do, act the way they act, speak the way they speak, go to the places that they go. We just kind of blend in. Would people even know that you know him? Or do you just follow at a distance, slipping in and out of church, fearing what people might think, or if they did know uh, what they might say about the fact that you are one of this man's disciples? Back in John chapter 12, Jesus had been sharing the gospel with a group of hard-hearted, unbelieving people, but yet uh, John tells us that some believed. Here's Jesus, he's preaching to a group of hard-hearted, unbelieving people, but yet some believed. Now tell me if you think these believers were following Jesus closely or from a distance. Here's the text, John chapter 12. Don't turn there, just listen. John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. You can look at it later. Jesus said, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Whose glory do you love more? Whose glory do you love more? I pray that that's the case. I mean, what is there to fear, my friends? What is there really to lose? I mean, just consider for a moment. A little reputation, a little mockery, a little talking behind your back, a little not being invited to this or to that. So what? You don't serve your reputation. You don't serve the upholding of your great name. Or do we? Or do we? You see, we've made the mistake of turning God's economy upside down. We think it negative to be dishonored for the name of Christ. But Jesus doesn't think so. Jesus does not think it's a negative thing when we are dishonored for his namesake. As a matter of fact, he said it would be that way. He said, if people hate me, you bet your bottom dollar they're going to hate you. If they treat me this way, they'll treat you the same. I mean, those are the words from Jesus' own lips. Jesus does not think it a negative thing when we are dishonored for the name of Christ, but oftentimes in our flesh, we do. We do. 
Jesus is greatly glorified when we stand for him in the midst of opposition. Friends, this is a great privilege and it's a great honor. Remember the apostles in Acts chapter 5? So this is, this is after the Garden of Gethsemane. This is after the trial of Jesus, after Jesus' crucifixion, his death and his resurrection. The apostles in Acts chapter 5, how did they interpret dishonor for the sake of Christ? Well, Luke tells us. Remember Luke wrote Acts, right? Luke chapter 5, Luke writes, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Anybody being beaten for the name of Christ? Not yet. Not yet. They beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And those apostles, they left the presence of the council. How? Luke tells us they left rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, this is after the fact, this is after the beating, okay? Everybody clear? After the beating, every day, Luke tells us, not imposing that phrase, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Friends, they were following closely. How closely are we following how closely are we following Jesus? We always get into trouble when we start to wonder or we start to follow at a distance. Number two, choose your company very wisely. Choose your company very wisely. Let me turn your attention back to verse 54. Look at this phrase here, speaking about Peter. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Where do we see Peter now? Where, where has Peter moved to now? The same Peter that was standing at Jesus' side at the confrontation in the garden is now standing shoulder to shoulder with the enemies of Christ. You see that? So now Peter has not only denied his Lord, but he's warming himself in the company of corrupt men. And, and the, the language of the text here, the language of the Koine Greek, actually pictures G, or, uh, Peter making himself at home with the officers. P Peter is just kind of settling in very nicely. He almost kind of feels at home here with the officers. It's interesting to note we're failing to follow hard after Jesus and we're failing to watch and pray will get you. Remember, that's what Jesus told his disciples back in the, in, in the dimly lit garden. He told his disciples, watch, fellas, watch and pray so that you will not concede to temptation that leads to sin. Watch and pray, be vigilant, be wide-eyed. And this is where not watching and not praying will get you. It'll get you around people that you have no business being around. It'll get you around people that you previously thought you'd never find yourself cozying up with, rubbing shoulders with. Don't turn there, but maybe you can remember back to Genesis chapter 18 and 19, the story of uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's an interesting little progression. If you've ever studied chapter or Genesis, uh, specifically chapters 18 and 19, I'm sure this probably came out in whatever study that you were uh, using there. But there's an interesting little progression that, that takes place in these two chapters, Genesis 18 and 19. In Genesis chapter 18, Lot looks toward Sodom. He looks toward Sodom. And then it's not very long after that Lot goes toward Sodom. Specifically, Lot went toward Sodom. He sets his eyes on, he looks toward Sodom, and then it's not very long after that Lot finds himself putting one foot after the other and actually going there, actually heading there. And then in Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, Lot is actually sitting in the gate of Sodom. He looked there, he went there, and then he sat there. You see the progression? You see the progression here of not following God closely and not choosing your company wisely? 
If you're not careful, you will find yourself sitting in the gate of Sodom. If Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, he was mingling with the leadership of the city. Friends, not a good crowd. Not a good crowd. And he probably never thought that he would have been there. But a compromise here, and a compromise there, and a compromise here, and a compromise there put him in the company of of men in a city, the only city in Scripture that God is recorded to have rained sulfur and fire down on. Wow. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the mercy, the measure of mercy that God has bestowed upon you. Be vigilant. Watch and pray. Keep your eyes fixed in the right direction. Walk in the right direction. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Okay? So that you don't find yourself sitting in the company of ungodly individuals. Now, let me just make a side note here. I, I am not at all trying to advocate that you not spend time around non-Christians. You write this down in the margin somewhere. There's no impact without contact. There's no impact without contact. But you must be very, very careful. Okay? Yes, we have to engage with the lost. Yes, we have to engage with those who, who do and are a part of the things that God hates. But be very, very careful as you do. David reminds us in Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Is that sitting again? But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Friends, who are you spending time with? Who are you spending time with? Who are you rubbing shoulders with? And are those individuals encouraging you toward greater intimacy with Christ? Right? Bad company corrupts good character. Right? Bad company corrupts good character. Your translation may say corrupts uh, good morals. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And here's what I want you to get here, friends. Don't think for a split second that you are above the influence of others. Let me give you just a little illustration here. Again, you must spend time with the lost in order to preach the gospel, right? And the gospel has to be preached if the lost are going to come to saving faith in Christ. It's Romans 10, 17, right? Faith comes by how? Hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. And Paul goes on there uh, in, the, in the following verses. How, how are they going to hear unless someone is sent? And, and someone's got to preach. Someone's got to go. And friends, I would submit to you that we all have to go. The same great commission that Jesus left his disciples with prior to his ascension into glory was to make disciples of all men, right? Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. You've got to. You've got to have face time with the lost, in order to preach the gospel, so they can hear the gospel, so that they can, by God's grace, respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. But just be careful who you're kind of cozying up next to. Be very careful who you're getting very comfortable with. Here's the illustration. Anybody ever, uh, probably, uh, probably not so many of you adults, but every adult was a, a younger one at some time. And so you remember going to the pool in the summer, and at some point during the summer, playing in the pool, you'd find yourself playing this little, this little game of tug-of-war where one of you would be in the pool, maybe the, the shallow end of the pool, and, you've, and you're grabbing the arm of your buddy who's standing on the pool deck, right? And he's trying to pull you one way, and you're trying to pull him the other way, right? It's a whole lot easier to pull the one on the pool deck into the water than it is to pull the one out of the water onto the pool deck, Okay, just don't forget for a split second that you are susceptible to the influence and being pulled in by the lost crowd. Got it? And so there's a, there's a tension there. We oftentimes want balance in the Christian life, right? But the, the Bible does not present us with a whole lot of balance. You know what the Bible presents us with? A whole lot of tension. Okay, and that's a, that's a great thing. That's fine. 
That's the way God has chosen to, to preserve and to give us his words. We see a lot of tension in Scripture, right? There's no impact without contact. We know that that's true. That's in one hand. At the same time, we have to be very careful that we're not influenced in an ungodly way. Both of those are true, okay? There's tension there. Just be careful. Be careful. Preach the gospel. Make Christ known with everything in you. Just be careful to choose your company wisely. Number three, don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. Look back at your Bible, and let's pick up now with verse 66. Look at verse 66 through 68. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, remember he's shoulder to shoulder, he's cozied up with the the, the guards here, This young gal looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. You see, as Peter is preparing to enter the courts of the high priest, he's confronted with his first temptation to deny Christ. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself there, she's, she's got eyes on it, seeing Peter warming, him, warming himself, she looked at him and she says, huh, you look really familiar to me. Where is it that I know you from? Uh, let's, uh, oh, yeah, you, you were with the Nazarene. You were with Jesus. Temptation. How are you going to respond in that moment? Peter now denies it. It's interesting to note that the, the question here uh, is, uh, is actually framed in the, the negative. In other words, the very way the question was asked elicited a negative response. You also were with the, the Nazarene, weren't you? Well, the way that that... That sentence construct comes to us in the original language there. It, it elicits a negative response. In other words, she's, she's expecting Peter to say, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I, I was with him. But just because the question elicited a negative response, that does not get Peter off the hook for his denial. In this moment, all the courage that we saw in Peter just a short time earlier in the garden as he was wielding his sword in Jesus' defense, it all vanishes into thin air. It all vanishes into thin air. And, and friends, this is not like macho, macho man coming, coming to Peter who's got this deep, booming voice. You were with the Nazarene, weren't you? I mean, this is a servant gal. Peter crumbles in fear. It crumbles in the moment of temptation, in fear. It all vanishes into thin air. And now Peter had done the very thing that he said he would never do. Remember Jesus said, after the, the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. Peter, full of pride, replied, even though they all fall away, Jesus, I will not. And then Jesus turns to his disciples again and he says, I tell you, Peter, I tell you, brother, This very night, just moments from now, it'll take place. This very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Can you see what crushed Peter here? It was overconfidence. Overconfidence. It was his self-reliance and thinking that he had the ability to remain faithful even when everyone else fell away. I mean, if there's one thing we can't question, it's Peter's sincerity. Peter, I think, was genuinely sincere, but he stepped over the line and into the waters of presumptuousness, thinking if everyone else falters, if everyone else fails, if everyone else fumbles the ball, yet I will. I'll be faithful. I'll remain faithful. Peter was overconfident. Peter was self-reliant. And Paul warns us against such thinking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you stand, take heed 
lest you fall. Sounds a whole lot like Proverbs chapter 16. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so Peter, when asked if he was the one, if he was one of Jesus' disciples, he crumbled, presumably under fear. He was overconfident and he replied, I am not. I am not. It's interesting to note, Peter actually uses the same word twice, but, but it's inflected a little bit different when Peter denied saying, I neither know nor un- understand what you mean. Find that little phrase there. I neither know nor understand what you mean. The word know and the word understand are, are a form of the same word there. But what that... Uh, twice used word in two different forms tells us is that Peter denied Jesus and he denied him completely. Completely. I don't know, I don't even understand. Peter not only denied Jesus, he denied him completely. John Calvin once said, a man filled not with fortitude, but with wind promises that he will obtain an easy victory over the whole world. And yet, no sooner does he see the shadow of a thistle than he immediately trembles. Let us therefore lean not on our own bravery, but on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because we will falter at the mere sight of a thistle. We're not as strong as we think we are. Don't let your guard down. Watch and pray. Be vigilant. Be mindful. Be intentional. Don't let your guard down. Don't become comfortable. This world is not your home. You're an alien and a stranger. Okay? Don't live here as if this is your forever home. It's not. It's not. Keep your guard up. Don't let it down. Number four, write this down. A little sin invites a lot of sin. A little sin invites a lot of sin. Look at verses 69 through 71 there in your Bible. And a servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he, Peter, denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. This is guilty by association here. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This is the second of Peter's three denials. And there's a lesson that we can learn here. And the lesson that we can learn here is that sin always wants company. Sin always wants company. A little sin always invites a lot of sin. If you crack the door open for sin, it won't be too long before the door is wide open. Sin always wants more sin. Sin is always looking for more ways to reproduce itself. You catch that, friends? Sin is seldom isolated. Sin is the result of poor thinking and poor acting that took place earlier. Temptation came, and I sinned. And oftentimes I keep sinning and sinning and sinning after the initial sin. Sin always wants company. So friends, here's what I want you to glean from this. We can't wait until the hour of temptation to try to figure out how we are going to deal with that temptation. You've heard me say it once, you've heard me say it twice, you've heard me say it numerous times. Plan your obedience in advance. The reason that we fall in the moment of temptation is because we have not planned our obedience in advance. And so when temptation comes, we're blindsided. We're blindsided by it. I mean... Waiting until the hour of temptation to try to figure out how you are going to deal with it, I said this two weeks ago, is like trying to figure out how you're going to get out of a burning building that has no evacuation plan. It's nearly futile. There's no evacuation plan. 
There's nothing but chaos, and chaos usually ends in tragedy. It's foolishness for us to think that we can fly by the seat of our pants and somehow overcome temptation when it comes. Again, Jesus told us, let me just hark back to Jesus' own words, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Don't get in the lazy boy. Don't get in the recliner. Don't get in the massage chair. Watch and pray. Keep your eyes open. Be alert. Be ready. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Be on your toes. Be aware. Be in the word. Be growing. Follow Jesus closely. Have someone, I said this two weeks ago, that knows your life inside and out. To not do so is foolishness. Does the whole church have to know you inside and out? No. Does someone? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's foolishness to live in relative obscurity. You can live in obscurity before men. You cannot live in obscurity before the Lord. Right? Hebrews 4.13. We lay naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees everything. Friends, accountability It cannot be your one and only crutch, but you must have it. Ladies, have someone in your life that knows you, that's asking you the hard questions, that's plumbing and poking and prodding just a little bit. We get offended when people poke and prod in our lives. How about be thankful for that? How about be thankful that someone loves you enough to not let you get too close to the cusp of the cliff? so that you don't go careening over it. Fellas, do you have someone, is there a man in your life who is willing to ask you the hard questions? Where have you been? What have you been looking at? What's going on between your ears? What are you thinking about? Someone who's able to see patterns of sin in your lives, guys and gals. And loves you enough to confront you graciously but truthfully. Do you have somebody like that? Brothers and sisters, I urge you to have somebody like that. Have somebody that knows you inside and outside. Because Satan's not going to put signs and flashing lights along the side of the road for miles and miles and miles uh, before temptation comes so that you know and you can prepare for it. It's not like the sign that says temptation in 10 miles, temptation in 5 miles. Here's some red flashing lights for you. Make sure that you prepare. No, he's cunning and he's crafty. He knows your weaknesses and he'll exploit them all day long. Temptation doesn't come with warning. Temptation will come and blindside you, and if you have not planned your obedience in advance, then you will likely stagger. Don't be overconfident. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. We need an action plan. An action plan looks something like this. What am I going to do when I get there? Or how am I going to respond? Or how will I keep my heart and my mind pure in this situation? Friends, those types of action plan thoughts, that's just pure wisdom. That's wisdom. The guy that led me to Christ and discipled me for years used to tell me this. He said, Eric, rules put on you by others is legalism. Rules put on you by you is wisdom. Now, that needs some qualification. Because if they are rules that are set in your lap from another that come right from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you cannot wave the legalism card, okay? If your brother or your sister is telling you, you need to do this or you need to stop that, and they can point you to chapter and verse, give you a street address for it, you cannot wave or play the legalism card, okay? We just call that plain and simple obedience, and it is commanded and expected, all right? But rules put on you by you, that is wisdom. That's wisdom. That's knowing where you're weak and setting up appropriate boundaries so that you don't fall. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. And there's a fine line there because we can can move from having good wisdom into overconfidence just like Peter did very quickly because we begin to trust in the fail-safeness of our own wisdom or the fail-safeness of our own plan. 
You see, so you can cross the line at multiple places. You can transgress and trespass at multiple places. But to not have an action plan, that's foolish. That's foolish. This is such a big deal. Fellas, I, I don't, my plan is not to, to harp on you, and we're already out of time, but this is such a, so many men have walked away from their families and have ripped their wives and children's hearts to shreds because they have failed to have a plan in the critical moment of temptation. And unless you think that sexual sin or adultery or pornography or anything else that is in kind of that deep end of the pool is confined to the male gender, it is absolutely not. Many wives had done the same things to their husband and their children. Because they wait until the hour. They wait until the moment of temptation. And then they crumble. They crumble. You can't wait until you're at your computer alone or in a hotel room alone on business to try and figure out how you're going to deal with temptation. Foolishness. Don't, don't try to figure out how, how close to the line you can get without stepping over it. Stay a country mile away from the line. And have people that know you well all around you so that if you begin to take steps toward the line, they're like, uh-uh, buddy. No way, sister. We, we live in a culture now that praises, that praises autonomy. It's just you and yourself. Friends, that is not, that is not the Bible's prescription for holiness. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of what? Witnesses. What do we do? We throw off every, every sin that entangles us, right? But the Bible does not praise autonomy. The Bible does not praise singularness. The Bible praises you and like-minded other yous doing it together. All right? Number five, remember Jesus' words. We'll end quickly here. Remember Jesus' words. Look at verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You will deny me three times. No sooner had Peter sworn... I don't know what you're talking about. Then two soul-crushing things happened to Peter. First thing that happened, the rooster crowed, just like Jesus said it was going to. And secondly, Peter denies Christ. Peter denies Christ. You know, it's interesting, Luke chapter 22, as you, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, finding a good harmony of the Gospels. Uh, I have uh, a couple in paper or in hardback that are actually bound. They're excellent. But uh, BibleGateway.com and other trustworthy, be careful what you find out there when you're searching for Bible stuff on the dark web. Uh, but there, there are some good things out there. There are some excellent resources. Just be, be vigilant, okay? Be discerning. Uh, but find yourself a harmony of the Gospels. Because as you're reading this, this account, actually, the, the, the denial of Peter... Here, the three denials, it, it, it appears in all four Gospels. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 22, we see that when Peter denied Jesus here, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. There's this locking of eyes that takes place here in the courtyard. Peter had done the very thing that his Lord said he would do. And right when he fails... Jesus' eyes, staring across the courtyard, lock on to Peter's eyes. And at that, at that point, Peter realizes what's taking place. He remembered the words that were spoken to him. He remembered what Jesus said. You can ask me later for my notes. I've got more on that thought there, but let me just close. Number six, keep a soft heart with repentance. Keep a soft heart with repentance. Look at the last phrase of verse 72 there. And he broke down and wept. And he broke down and wept. It was probably a combination of Jesus' look and Peter's remembering of Jesus' words that caused Peter to, to crumble uh, in tears here, to break down and to weep. Matthew notes that Peter wept bitterly. 
Mark actually picks up on this language by using the imperfect tense of wept. In other words, Peter wept and he wept continually. He continued to weep. And while Mark doesn't say this, I think it's true. Mark does not say that Peter repented. Mark simply says that Peter broke down and wept. But I think we see every indication that Peter was indeed genuinely repentant. Peter's actions are evidence of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Did Peter sin big? He did. And then he recognized his failure. He locked eyes with Jesus. He wept bitterly. Not that weeping bitterly uh, is synonymous with repentance. But we see that brokenness of heart. And then Peter is restored by Jesus just shortly. And then when Peter went on to be very effective in ministry for Christ. I think we have, though Mark did not say it explicitly, every indication that Peter was broken and genuinely repentant. Speaking of repentance, there's an interesting contrast between Judas and Peter that I want you to note this morning as we close. You see, Peter, I would submit to you, repented and was thus forgiven and restored. Judas, on the other hand, was said to have repented, but then went right out and committed suicide. What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, the difference is in the words used to describe their repentance. The words used to describe, or the word used to describe Peter's actions is metanoeo. Metanoeo, it means to have a change of mind, to have a change of heart, to have a change of attitude. But the word used for Judas's, quote, repentance is quite different. Turn over for just a second and we'll actually end here. You won't turn back to Mark. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And find verses 3 4 and 5. Matthew 27, 3 through 5. You there? Matthew writes this, speaking about Judas. Then when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, here it is, he changed his mind. Three words come from one Greek word. He changed his mind. He repented. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went away and hanged himself. Well, the phrase changed his mind is a translation of the word metamelomai. It's a little bit different. Metanoia is what is used speaking about Peter, a genuine change of heart and mind and attitude. Metamelomai is what is translated, Judas changed his mind here, and it simply means to regret. That's the difference. That's the difference. Both Peter and Judas were said in the Koine Greek to have repented. One word means to have a spiritual change of heart and mind and attitude, to come into conformity or alignment with the will and word of God. The word used of Judas just means to regret. This word has no thought of changing in, uh, in, in regards to one's spiritual condition. Peter recognized his sin, and we see the fruit of genuine repentance, but Judas, on the other hand, only regretted his decision. Friends, this is a clear picture of 2 Corinthians chapter sin. Or, 2 Corinthians chapter sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay? Where Paul talks about godly sorrow leading to repentance and worldly sorrow. And so let me close this morning by just asking you to consider your own life. What does your repentance look more like? Is it a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of attitude, a coming into conformity with the will and word of God? Or is your repentance metamelomai? Is it just a regret? Is it just worldly sorrow? 
Is it just I wished I hadn't done that? Or I wish now I, I didn't have the consequences that came along with that set of actions? Which describes you better? One is fruit of genuine conversion, and one, one should signal that you've never come to saving faith in Christ. Which one speaks more clearly of you? Is there a true brokenness, a true sorrow that leads to change? Is that repentance evident in you? Or are you merely regretful for the things that you do, the things that you think, the places you go, the things you watch, just because they have consequences? Peter was broken. I'm sure he felt like a total failure. Matter of fact, he might have wondered if Jesus could ever use him again. You ever been there, Christian? You blow it big, you sin big time, and you think, could you ever use me again effectively, Jesus? Friends, the answer is yes, 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 yes. And Peter is a shining example of that. Three times, as a matter of fact, Peter denied his Lord. Three times, right? And then three times later, Jesus comes to Peter and he says, do you love me? You love me, fella? I do. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? I do. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. Is your love for the Lord expressed in genuine repentance? If so, friends, you can't out God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of my sin. Grace is never a license to sin, but grace is always greater than your sin. Friends, we are much like Peter in our denying Jesus and I pray that God would grant us the grace that we should also be like him in our repentance. Is it true of you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it challenges, convicts, that it binds up, that it encourages us, uh, but that most of all, it points us, it reorients our sight and fixes it squarely upon the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and uh, his work for us. Lord, we thank you for that mystery that we sang of this morning, that God became a man and that he was crushed for our sin in our place, the most scandalous exchange uh, on the face of the planet. Yet, uh, God, uh, you willingly, willingly uh, were crushed for us, Jesus. We thank you for that. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.